anyone claiming that America's economy is in decline is peddling fiction. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Raising the debt ceiling does not increase our debt. It does not somehow promote profligacy. I know words. I have the best words. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. Yo, yo, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Peddling Fiction. I, of course, am your host, the voice and soul of so-called fiction, Johnny Profita. Thank you all so very much for listening. And for those of you not familiar with the show, all you new listeners out there, we talk about politics and current events and some economics, always coming from a libertarian point of view. I am an unapologetic, free market, anti-government, capitalist pig. And I think that will become pretty obvious as the show goes on. The more episodes you listen to, the more my bias will come out. But I never try to hide it. I'm not like one of those mainstream corporate press type of people that pretend I don't have an agenda here. I absolutely do. And that is to promote liberty and libertarian principles. And hopefully uh, win some some hearts and minds in this battle against authoritarianism that has gone gangbusters over the last couple of months. I can't think of a more important time to be reiterating the importance of, of liberty and, and the principles of libertarianism than during this pandemic when we're all under lockdown I, of course, am broadcasting once again deep behind enemy lines in Chicago, Illinois. And the weather, as usual, is terrible. Absolutely terrible. It's, you know, 50 degrees and raining, and it's just been like that forever. We did get some—it was sort of nice for a little bit this past weekend on Saturday. We had one day where it was just torrential rain, like Thursday, Friday, Sunday, Monday— and it lightened up on Saturday for a little bit. It wasn't really warm, you know. It was like upper 50s, maybe 60. Kind of nice when you were out in the sun. And uh, I, I took advantage of that to invite myself over to a, a buddy of mine's house who lives a, a few blocks away. And this past summer, when they were doing construction on my condo, and they, my balcony was out of uh, commission for the entire summer and uh, actually for about six months. It, it's it's back now, just in time for some shitty rainy weather. I, I can use my balcony again. Um, but when it was out of commission, I took my grill over to his place because he's got a nice backyard and he didn't have a grill. And there is there aren't too many things that I enjoy more than just getting shit-faced, and barbecuing in the summertime. So he's been taking some, some odd and end uh, jobs out in, the, uh, out in the real world. He's one of those uh, essential workers now. But I think somebody picked up one of his shifts or something like that, so I was able to uh, get some people together and go over there and break quarantine. Nothing, nothing is more satisfying than having a, an outdoor barbecue not a ton of people, you know, five or six people, just good friends uh, that, that I hadn't seen in a while. And, uh, man, did we have a blast. It was so much fun just to be with your friends again, drink a little too much, had the grill going. Somehow I managed to nail the, the cook on everything, despite... Uh, barely remembering actually manning the grill, but I crushed the, the, the cook. I nailed it on two pork tenderloins and a New York strip and some uh, chicken quarters. And, uh, man, it was just a great time. Went into the wee hours of the night and uh, paid for it on Sunday. <laughs> That's for sure. 
Uh, I was hurting, but uh, it, it was worth it. What else are you going to do, right? And, you know, I was talking to some of my buddies there, and they're not nearly on the the level that I am being an, an AMCAP libertarian or anything like that. But they are, everyone seems to just be totally over this. Even people that were freaking out a, a few months ago about this whole coronavirus thing, they're over it. Uh, my sister, who is a nurse, who's working in the ICU during that period where everything was going to be overrun and this was going to be Armageddon, she was freaking out at the time, and and she seems to be over it. In fact, she thinks that she might have even had the coronavirus. It came and went, and, and it was like nothing. It, it barely even affected her, if that's what she actually had. She's not sure, but um, she seems to be over it, and she was you know, seeing the worst of the worst for a while, which is you know, somewhat understandable for her to be on edge about this whole thing when you're in the, you're seeing people that are admitted to the ICU and that's all you see, your perspective gets a little skewed. But even she has come around to the fact that this is just, this is ridiculous. We got to go back to living our lives. And it's nice to see people who have not been red-pilled that have... uh for all intents and purposes, are are of the status persuasion. And they're starting to see through this whole charade. And nothing is more encouraging than that. But then, of course, you look around and you see all these people walking around with masks. And I'm seeing pictures of bars and casinos that are tentatively opening up and everything is just draped in like fucking plexiglass like they're putting up dividers along the bar so you get you get to go to your own little cubby hole in the bar you're surrounded by plexiglass the bartender's behind plexiglass you got to have a mask on there, there's plexiglass around the, the fucking uh blackjack table i don't even know how you're gonna shoot craps but uh i mean who what are we doing here? Who wants to live like this? This this just looks miserable. And I've got a couple uh, I've got a couple trips planned. For those of you new listeners out there, I this actually this pandemic is probably 100% my fault. And that would be because after several years of talking about it with my family, I finally got everybody on board and organized a 10-person family trip to Italy for three weeks. And that was supposed to take place about a month from now, June, middle of June, June uh, 16th to July 7th. And I spent months, months and months booking this thing. I booked all the accommodations for 10 people for three weeks, booked a lot of the flights, mapped out the itinerary, had everything planned, and then, of course... Uh, God looked at that and, and decided that, no, 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 John's not going to have a, a nice little uh, three-week vacation in Italy. He can't bring his, uh, my old man Sicilian, I was going to bring him back to the motherland. He's never been there. I've never been there either, but we were going to eventually work our way down to Sicily. And, uh, you know, my parents are getting up there now, so there's there, there aren't too many more opportunities to do this. And uh, but God, God said no. Now, not only are we going to ruin this trip, but we're going to ruin the world for everybody else just because you attempted to do something fun. And as my old man would say, if it weren't for bad luck, we wouldn't have any luck at all. But, but I've been planning some some new trips this year. I finally, the reason I brought that up, I guess, is because I finally just yesterday canceled the last of our accommodations. I had to keep waiting for Airbnb to extend the deadline, uh, the dates of travel to be covered to get a full refund. Because originally they started, it was like, oh, if you're traveling before April 30th, then you'll get a full refund. And then it was like May 15th and then May 31st and then June 15th. And finally, they went to the end of June, and I was able to cancel all of our accommodations and, and get a, a full refund with the exception of one credit for the um, uh, service fee. So now I have to book an Airbnb by the end of the year. I lose lose out on that service fee. And I got a couple trips planned, and I'm looking at these fucking airlines, man, and it just looks so miserable 
I mean, we already ruined our lives for, for the last two months. Everyone's life has been completely ruined for two months. Two months of our lives are gone, and everything's been terrible. And, and people have died from this, no doubt. Their, their life is obviously gone as well. But do we really want to live the rest of our life like this? For what? For what? I mean, look at the numbers that are coming out or go back and listen to the prior episodes of this show where I've gone through some of them. This is not worth what we are doing. And I'm looking at these airlines and what I'm going to have to go through just to fly now. And it just sounds miserable. Flying already was terrible. Absolutely terrible. It was one of my least favorite things to do. And I, I mean, I'm already taking every possible drug imaginable to just knock me out for the flight. I mean, it's really the closest thing we have to time travel is you start popping a bunch of Xanax when you're going through security. And after you get through, you, ha you stop by the bar and uh, slam a couple bloodies or something like that. Make sure you have a companion that will uh, ensure that you'll get to your gate on time. The last thing you remember is boarding the plane and then you're waking up in uh, Mexico or something like that. It's, it's really uh, not a bad way to go, go about things. But now they're talking, I mean, yeah, mandatory masks. I'm looking at some of these designs. Like, they're going to redesign the entire plane for these viruses. And they've got, like, cocoon pods now, like plexiglass. Our, our entire life is just going to be surrounded by plexiglass. We're all going to be fucking bubble boys. And everything is going to be, every transaction is going to be through plexiglass. Like, we're at a fucking check cashing place on the south side of Chicago at 2 a.m. I mean, this just looks miserable. So they got these cocoon things that sort of wrap around like the front of it's obviously open, but it goes over your head and around the sides so that you're, you're sectioned off from the other seats. And some of them are turning the middle seat around. So they're facing the other direction, which I mean, like once you recline, you're going to be looking at somebody in there, like making eye contact with somebody you don't even fucking know in the middle seat for eight hours on your flight. I mean, this, this just looks retarded to me. In addition to having masks, in addition to all, and then I started thinking about all the TSA screening procedures that they're going to come up with as if that wasn't bad enough. And believe me, I, I will skip any, I will do whatever it takes to skip the line. I do not wait in lines i have a strict no line policy and you know tsa pre-check global entry you name it i've bought it and if they offer anything to get around the coronavirus screening i will pay an arm and a leg to to uh get access to that but they're, they're talking about four hour wait times to get through security now and they're going to be sanitizing all the luggage and maybe no carry-on bags and I, I don't know maybe they're going to wrap all of our fucking suitcases and some plastic wrap or something to keep it sanitized what are they going to do with these lines I, I was in I had a flight this was like Christmas day years ago I, this was back when my parents were in Minnesota for a couple years and I was flying back from Minnesota after Christmas, and I, I took a flight at the ass crack of dawn on Christmas Day, thinking that nobody else would be flying. And man, was I wrong. I got there at like 4.30 in the morning. I think my flight was at 6, maybe 5.45, something like that. So I, I figured I had plenty of time. And for whatever reason, the airline was packed. But this line went through all around through the little barricade things that they set up up uh, stairs, down a corridor, into the parking garage. And that was without social distancing. Now they're going to have everybody standing six feet back from each other. And where are they going to put all these people? And you know it's the TSA, so they're going to come up with the most retarded ideas ever. It's not like they're going to have some sort of appointment for you. That would be too convenient. Like, okay, this is your flight. This is your appointment. You go here and we screen you and there's no line or anything like that. No, it's going to be a retarded government policy. Guaranteed. And it's going to be a nightmare. An absolute nightmare. But anyway... <laughs>
Um, things are opening back up, and this is what we have to look forward to: a life of plexiglass. Um, we we really need to get people need to get over this, okay? And I, I'm I'm still somewhat hopeful, but at the same time, I look around and there are just so many coronavirus Karens out there trying to ruin life as we know it because they're afraid of getting sick for a few days. And uh, man, I am just really dreading traveling now more so than ever. You know, I was watching that show Lost during this whole quarantine thing because I was starved for content. I actually really liked that show. And, um, you know, they, for those of you not familiar with it, there's this mystical island out in the middle of the ocean that nobody knows how to get to except a, a very select few people. And one of the ways of getting onto this island, besides having your plane magically crash there, is by submarine. And what they do to the passengers when they get on the sub before they take off is they knock them the fuck out. They give them like a, an orange juice cocktail that just puts them out for the duration of the trip. And I'm starting to think that all these airlines should just do that or at least offer that as an option. Just give me the cocktail. I will drink it. You can shove me into some sort of fucking pod, whatever you want to do. I don't need to be awake for this flight. This is going to be a miserable experience. Just knock me out. I, why, aren't we, why aren't we already doing this? Just knock everybody out. Who wants to be uh, awake on the plane? It sucks. It's miserable. And, and now with the mask on, it's not like you can get hammered and just slam a bunch of fucking uh, whiskeys or uh, slamming your doers while you're, uh, while you're flying. No, You're you going to have a mask on. It's going to be a pain in the ass. And, and think of all the money that they could save. You wouldn't need stewardesses or anything. You just put everybody in some sort of box and uh, knock them the hell out, throw them on the plane, and uh, next thing you know, you're waking up in paradise. I, I might sign up for that. I don't know. At this point, anything to make the pain stop, I'm considering. But anyway, that is um, not exactly what I planned on talking about today. The, um, there's a lot going on with the, with the markets today. There's a lot of economic data coming out this week, and we also have a Fed meeting. This is what the, the Federal Open Market Committee where our wise overlords at the Federal Reserve come out and, and tell us how good of a job they're doing and how they've got everything under control and all this money that they're creating out of thin air, trillions of dollars, and doling out to all the banks and buying up. Now they're buying uh, junk bonds high-yield corporate debt in addition to all this treasury debt and mortgage-backed security, like you name it, the Fed is buying it to try to prop up this stock market. I think they meet eight times a year or something like that every six weeks or so. And it should be just your, your every six weeks, your reminder, just the constant reminder that we don't have anything resembling a free market. We are so far removed from free market capitalism, we, we actually have a, a private banker's bank that has a monopoly on money and gets to set the price of money. That's what they're doing. They're price fixing the cost of money when they're setting these interest rate targets, which is what these meetings are all about. They talk about what interest rate they're going to target, and they're targeting zero now. <laughs> which means that they're just going to buy a shitload of fucking government bonds to force those those rates down. That, that's how they control interest rates. But it, it's price-fixing money. And, and money is almost half of every transaction. And what we know from economics, sound economic fundamentals, is that when you price-fix, when you arbitrarily set the price of something, you're going to either get shortages or surpluses, because you're not letting the market function and you're not letting the market find that price where everything clears. So our entire economy is, is affected by this. Everything, everything you do. Oh, before I forget, that, that reminds me, I was listening to the uh, Dave Smith part of the problem yesterday. I, I caught some of his episode. I didn't listen, have time to listen to the whole thing. I got pulled into, well, I got invited into a... Uh, a Zoom with a dear, 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 dear friend of the show. A Zoom and a consume a bottle of wine. And, you know, I'm not drinking enough wine as it is. So I, uh, I turned off the podcast to 
partake in those festivities, but they, they were doing a, a great episode on the Federal Reserve. And he's starting a whole back to basics uh, libertarian principle series that he's going to do with with good old Robbie the Fire over there. And they were they were talking the Fed, just sort of a very rudimentary rundown of what it is, where it came from, what they do. And it, it was a great little episode. I, I think I didn't like I said, I didn't have time to listen to the whole thing, but I don't think that they're going to cover this little portion of it, and I thought I would add that because I know we have a lot of crossover. A lot of uh, uh, listeners from from that show also listen to this show, and if there is anybody that listens to this podcast that doesn't already listen to that, I don't know what you're thinking, man. He's got a, a great show over there. I've been running some ads on their podcast uh, th- this past week, so um, go check that out if you need to brush up on the Federal Reserve. But one thing I wanted to add to, to what they were saying that I think is a great little um, microcosm for the way government operates and, and sort of a metaphor for just everything that, that I talk about on this show is that with the creation of the Federal Reserve, this is, this is in 1913, the original Federal Reserve Act, they were forbidden from buying government debt, treasury bills, treasury bonds. The Federal Reserve was not allowed to do that, okay? And the reason for that is because back then we actually still had a few um, honest, concerned uh, people in Congress, and it is, you know, as honest as a politician can be, I suppose. But they were worried that, by creating a, a central bank and giving it the ability to buy, basically create money uh, out of thin air, I guess back then we were on a gold standard, but giving them a monopoly on the issuance of money and allowing them to buy government-issued debt from their own government would create a very incestuous relationship that would essentially allow them to monetize the debts of the federal government and create a ton of inflation in the process. And for the, you know, monetization, debt monetization, it sounds complicated, but it really isn't. The, the government is just issuing a bond, right, which is a, a promise to pay you money in the future. The Federal Reserve is creating the money to buy that bond, and those dollars, uh, th- that debt gets converted into dollars, and those dollars get circulated throughout the economy, and that is the inflation the effect of that inflation is rising prices. Now, those, those prices could rise. It, it depends on where the money flows and how quickly it changes hands. The reason we didn't see a lot of inflation in goods and, and services that, that people buy, like food at the grocery store or something like that, is because the, the goal of the, the quantitative easing process, this is going back to 2008 now, the, the reason why a, a lot of uh, libertarians were predicting you know, runaway inflation, but they didn't actually see it in a lot of the things that you buy, is because all of that inflation went into the stock market, hence the all-time highs, the 30000 that we almost got to on the Dow. That's where all the inflation went. The money went to the bankers. Uh, the fat cats on Wall Street, and they speculated with it in the stock market. And that drove up all the, the prices of all the, the, the stocks and on, the, on those exchanges. So it, it can go into the stock market. It can also go into the regular everyday things. So that's what they were worried about was inflation and debt monetization. So they didn't allow the Federal Reserve to buy any government-issued debt. But, of course, this was short-lived because right after the creation of the Federal Reserve, we had our first crisis, which was World War I. And you guys all know very well that our government never lets a crisis go to waste. And what better way to take advantage of, of a crisis than, you know, we got to support the troops and the fate of the world is dependent on this and we need to fund this war somehow. So how are we going to do that? Uh, we'll allow the Federal Reserve, we'll amend the Federal Reserve Act, and back then they actually went through the process of amending it, to allow them to buy government-issued treasury bills and treasury bonds, and that way we can fund the war effort and you know uh, spread democracy and all, all that gr- great stuff, right? So World War I, 
comes and goes. The Federal Reserve Act is amended to allow them to buy uh, treasury bills and treasury bonds, but they put in a little fail-safe. They were still worried that this could lead to a lot of uh, government-issued debt and debt monetization and inflation and things like that. So they they said the Federal Reserve can buy government debt, but we're going to put a limit on that. This limit, you know today, as the debt ceiling. This was the original debt ceiling, was that first limit that they put on the amount of debt that the federal government could issue. And that limit, despite where we're at right now, was not $26 trillion, okay? It wasn't even $20 trillion or $10 trillion or even $1 trillion. I don't even know if they knew that numbers could go that high back in 1917, but the original debt ceiling number, the amount of debt that $1 more than this, the federal government was forbidden from issuing was $11.5 billion. That's billion with a B. And of course, the the first time we ran up to that, uh, I mean, it didn't take them long, said, oh, you can issue $11.5 billion? Okay, let's do that. And they did that. And then, oh, you know, we need uh, to raise this debt ceiling a little bit because, uh, you know, we got to fund World War II or the Great Depression and, you know, whatever crisis, uh, whatever was going on at the time, this was no time to worry about the debt. We, we just need to raise it and uh, don't worry, we'll pay it off somewhere down the line. And of course, just like every self-imposed government restriction, when we task the government with limiting itself, with putting uh, restraints on their own power, it fails miserably. Anytime you're having the government restrict itself, right? That is tantamount to uh, no restriction on their power at all. And we've seen this play out in just about every facet of life. Everything that they're doing right now is unconstitutional. All of those chains that of the Constitution we were supposed to bind them down in, those have long since been broken. And um, the Federal Reserve and the debt ceiling is just another feather in their cap and a nail in the coffin of minarchism. This is a, one of the reasons why I can't bring myself to be a minarchist and why I am an anarchist, because the idea that you're going to turn over all this power and control to the government and they're going to limit themselves is absurd. Anarchists get accused of being utopian uh, oh yeah you, you just have this utopian view of society well i don't know what's more utopian or naive a anarchism or the idea that you're going to turn over power and control to a bunch of sociopaths and they're going to abide by things that you write down on a piece of paper if if you still believe that i present to you the federal reserve and the debt ceiling which is now is completely suspended now by the way we, we don't even go through the charade of, of actually pretending that there is this ceiling or raising the ceiling. That was even too much trouble after a while because, you know, it used to take us years to get to the next debt ceiling. They'd give you an extra $500 billion or something. That would last you a couple of years. But we started after Barack Obama and then with Donald Trump, we started bumping up against that ceiling like every couple of months. And it's just such a pain in the ass, you know, because every Congress, you know, they want their their strings attached to it. So, yeah, we'll we'll raise the debt ceiling for you. But you got to give us this, this and that if you want to raise it. And so then they just decided, well, fuck this. We'll just suspend this thing indefinitely. And it's another great example of how the government takes these words that have actual meanings and they totally pervert them. A ceiling to the federal government is apparently this adjustable thing that you can just keep moving up every time you bump up against it. That, that is not a ceiling that anybody else in the real world would recognize as a ceiling. What we really need to do is rename this the debt target because that's a lot more accurate, right? They, they set a target somewhere off in the future, $26 trillion, and then we, we set about our ways going to hit that target. And then once we hit that target, we move back a little farther, maybe $30 trillion this time, see if we can get up there. I mean, nobody is even talking about this as a problem anymore. The national debt, who cares? 
who cares? This is how you know it's a real problem. Once a problem becomes serious, like there is no chance of us getting out of this whatsoever, nobody's talking about it. Everybody goes silent. Remember back to the, the Barack Obama days of 2008, 2009, the Tea Party and the $10 trillion national debt? Republicans were up in arms back then. They were really worried about the debt. We, we were worried about Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. These were unsustainable. We, we, we can't take on all this debt to fund these programs anymore. We need to, we need to um, modify them and change them and tweak them a little bit. And the national debt, this, and the debt ceiling, we're not going to raise the debt ceiling anymore. We're going to shut down the government because we can't keep taking on all this debt. Once we got past like $20 trillion, nobody's talking about it anymore. You don't hear anybody. And to me, that is the perfect indication that this is a big problem. This is so big that we're not even going to try to deal with this. We're just going to bury our heads in the sand. We're not talking about it. Republicans aren't talking about it. Democrats aren't talking about it. Nobody, nobody breathes a word of the national debt anymore. Nobody's talking about Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid. Nope, there aren't talks of cuts to anything. And that's how you know that this is a really, really big problem. And we are now at, last time I checked, it was $26 trillion. Let's see how we're doing here. Oh, no, it's only $25 trillion. I beg your pardon. $25.3 trillion in bonded national debt. And man, is there a lot of red on this national debt clock. The, these numbers are just astronomical. And that doesn't include all of the, the state and local debt that all of these states that are now clamoring for bailouts from the federal government, which I don't even know how this is possible. Like, how can a federal government that has, not only doesn't have any money, has negative, uh, like, $25 trillion plus hundreds of trillions in unfunded liabilities and promises that they've made in Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, all of this stuff, uh, pension funds, uh, they don't have any money. All right, everybody, look at this. Look at all of this debt. Uh, over a trillion in credit card debt, 1.6 trillion in student loan debt. Uh, mortgage debt, where is that? Um, I, don't, I don't see the mortgage debt on here. State debt is 1.1 trillion, almost 1.2. Local debt is 2 trillion. So the idea that we're going to have this federal bailout of all of these states that have gotten themselves into trouble, like the great state of Illinois, and the city of Chicago, of which I am a resident. I mean, this is absurd. If the, if the people are broke, the government is broke. And who's going to do all of this bailing out? This is just in, in pure insanity. I mean, all of these states are totally screwed. Totally screwed. They haven't been collecting. They were screwed before this whole thing took place because nobody wants to save for a rainy day. And they haven't been, now for the last two months, they haven't been collecting any taxes, no tax revenue. Their pensions were severely underfunded before this. I mean, I would get my property tax bill, which is fucking outrageous, by the way, in my humble opinion, to live in Chicago and not use anything. But, uh, you know, I'm paying about seven grand a year in property taxes for a, a two-bedroom condo. You know, uh, okay, but they they list these pensions. They're like twenty percent funded, twenty percent funded, and this was during the so-called recovery. And these pensions, they make these, they make these absurd projections based on uh, market returns. They assume that they're going to get an eight percent return year over year in the stock market in perpetuity. Like there's never ever going to be a recession ever again. You're never going to have a down year or the, the market's never going to get cut in half like it did in 2008. And all of these projections are just pure fantasy. So they're even more underfunded than they think they are. They have bloated budgets, overpaid bureaucrats, none of, none of which are losing their jobs. No, 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 no. The, the government's still getting paid. Nobody's taking pay cuts. It's always in the private sector. They're the ones that have to sacrifice. Teachers, teachers here are trying to get basically a paid vacation for the rest of the year. 
they don't want they don't feel comfortable going back to school in the fall now because of coronavirus, right? This is their new thing. It really just goes to show you that it's never really about the children at all. Uh, of course not. Of course not. Because they're not at any risk of getting any of this stuff. The children are fine for, for the coronavirus. And uh, their dear, dear, dear education that is this right, right? Education is a human right. That's what Bernie Sanders tells us. And, and, and this is so important to the child's life, these public schools that apparently aren't essential enough to remain open during a pandemic, which is pretty funny, by the way. But it, it just goes to show you that that's all just a bunch of bullshit. And go back and listen to, if you haven't, or if you're a, a new listener on the show, I did an episode on the Chicago Teachers Union which, I mean, feel free to extrapolate that onto any teacher's union across the, the country that is just scathing to the, the public education system. I highly recommend that episode. But the, these states, I, I am fully convinced that uh, places like Illinois, um, California, New York, one of the reasons why they want to keep this lockdown going, they want to perpetuate this as long as possible, is because they want to be able to justify a bailout from the federal government. And they're trying to use this lockdown to mask all of the problems that their progressive bullshit policies have gotten them into. I mean, we, we, Chicago was on the verge of bankruptcy already. They're de our, we were already issuing basically junk bonds, and it should have been uh, rated much lower than it already was. Like, there's no chance that any of this stuff is getting paid back. And they're counting all of these uh, these really profligate states are counting on using other people in other states to bail them out from all of their bad decisions. But they're going to keep saying that their policies are, are successful, that, that, that they know the way to to design and, and run a better society. It just, you know, you just have to bail it out with all these other societies that actually operate responsibly and, and are a little more free market oriented. They, they just have to bail us out every once in a while. But we, no, but we still have the right idea here that these progressive policies are, are the way to go as long as there's somebody out there who can, uh, you know, get us out of all the trouble that our policies cause. But I, I really think that's what's going on here. If there was no possibility of a federal gov uh, federal government bailout of the states, you could bet your bottom dollar that they would not be shutting down. A lot of them would be doing the whole Swedish thing where th they don't shut down society at all. They keep everything going. And yeah, no huge gatherings uh, uh, for sporting events or something like that, but you're still operating your business because they still need that tax revenue so that they can pay themselves a salary. Because the states don't have access, remember, to the printing press. Only the federal government does. The states are dependent uh, on tax revenue or uh, they, they can um, try to convince the federal government to run the printing press for them. And it, if that's what we're going to do, if we're just going to bail out every state that is on the verge of bankruptcy by giving them access to the printing press, I mean, look out. The moral hazard there, and I, I talked about this on a prior episode, it's just off the charts. It's worse than the uh, the whole Eurozone thing. Like We got 50 states, 50 states that will all be competing to be the worst performing, like who can be the most irresponsible and the most profligate because like why else would you, why would you save anything? Why would you not spend it like there's no tomorrow? Because anybody that does save, anybody that is responsible is just going to have to use that money to bail out all the other states that are partying like there's no tomorrow. So I, I think that's a large part of the reason why places like uh, Illinois are, are still under lock and key. And uh, I guess that's a good, a good segment into the, the article. One of the articles I pulled from the stack today, worse than 2008 American pension funds report record losses in Q1. So here we go. Record losses for the pension funds that were already underfunded. Last month, Mitch McConnell shocked investors and infuriated several colleagues when he mentioned during a radio interview with a conservative talk show host that he would prefer giving states the ability to file for bankruptcy protection before allowing federal coronavirus money to bail out underfunded pensions. McConnell's critics exploded with rage and the conservative finance uh, types were deeply chagrined. 
judging by their reactions on social media. But as anybody who has followed uh, Zero Hedge's coverage, uh, this article is on Zero Hedge, by the way, of the simmering national pension crisis, should at least understand the point the GOP congressional leader was trying to make. Just as Illinois was becoming a hotspot for the coronavirus thanks to early signs of domestic transmission in Chicago, some pension industry trackers warned investors to watch Illinois. And according to some of the earliest data on how the March market collapses impacted these funds, it's starting to look like, if anything, analysts underestimated the severity of the blow. And now, just as the great American socialist revival has convinced teachers that they deserve more pay and benefits, uh, better benefits, despite the fact that retired teachers keep drawing a paycheck until they die on top of Social Security, inspiring teacher strikes like those in West Virginia, Kentucky, and Oklahoma, states are facing up to the unavoidable reality that they will need to cut benefits for state employees. Public pensions lost a median 13.2% in three months, ending in March 31st. According to Wilshire Trust Universe, comparison service data released Tuesday, slightly more than in the fourth quarter of 2008. March's stock market plummet led to the biggest one-quarter drop in the 40 years the firm has been tracking. It was a horrible quarter for all public funds, said the Chicago Teachers Pension Fund investment chief Angela Miller-May. Stocks bounced back in April, making up a significant chunk of the losses. But absent a full and speedy recovery, pension losses are poised to drive up an already burdensome retirement cost of governments. There will be a lot of pressure to cut benefits, said Don Boyd, co-director of the state and local government finance project at the University of Albany's Rockefeller College. State and local governments are trying to figure out how to not cut school aid too deeply, not cut Medicaid too deeply, not raise taxes, Boyd said. Pension contributions are pretty far down the list of things they want to pay for. Uh, the article goes on. This is kind of long. I don't know if I'm going to have time to go through all of this here, but I think you get the point. None of those losses, 13.2% this past March, were ever factored into any of these pension fund calculations for how funded they were going to be. And there are more losses coming. I don't think we have seen the end of this bear market. Bear markets, the, well, the way markets tend to work, right, when you're in trend, if you're in a, a bear market, right, you get slow incremental moves down and then you get violent moves up like a, it's called a retracement. OK, or a, a, a dead cat bounce or a head fake. These are all kind of you know terms that traders throw around. So bear markets slide a slope of hope, they say. Right, you slowly you're sliding down, and then there's like a little little bit of hope that you, you're you're out of it, and you get this little head fake up, and then you you resume the next leg down. Bull markets work the opposite way. You climb a wall of worry. You slowly make incremental moves up, and then you might have a a really quick retracement down, a really quick move down, before you resume the trend of climbing higher. That's uh, climbing a wall of worry is a bull market. Sliding a slope of hope is a bear market. And a lot of people get fooled during those violent corrections that we just, we just had one following that, those March lows. I don't think we are out of the woods yet. I don't think that we're going to V-bottom out of this. It would really surprise me if the longest-running bull market in history was followed by the shortest bear market in history. I don't see that very likely. But this, of course, is all dependent on the Fed and whether or not they are successful in backstopping this stock market and blowing up another bubble in all these asset prices. But the problem the Fed is in is that in order to backstop this falling stock market and try to pump it back up, they're going to have to create a lot of dollars, many more than we've actually been seeing. And they risk the long-term security, the purchasing power of the dollar. So they've kind of painted themselves into a corner. You either let the stock market fall or you try to save it by creating a bunch of money and blowing the bubble back up. But if you do that, 
you, you destroy the value of the dollar. So you either have to let the, the stock market fail or the dollar fail. There's really no other option here. And they seem hell-bent on not allowing the stock market to go down. That, that's what Chairman Powell is out there to, saying today and tomorrow, that they're, they're not going to let this market go down. Dollar be damned. Well, he's going to try to actually convince you that they've got inflation under control. See, the way inflation works, it's kind of like if you were, um, if you've ever lived in like a, a dump of an apartment with just really shitty plumbing, right? And, and you get into the shower and you turn on the hot water and it's cold for like a minute and then you keep turning it hotter and hotter and it's not getting any hotter and hotter and then after a certain amount of time goes by scalding hot water comes out and and you burn the shit out of yourself that's how inflation works there's a lag okay the money has to get created that's the inflation the inflation's already taken place now it's just a matter of those dollars getting exchanged within the economy okay and that lag is we're in that lag right now. And at some point, all of this inflation is going to come rushing out of that uh, faucet like the hot water, and it's going to be too late, right? The, the genie's out of the bottle. The toothpaste is out of the tube. You can't undo that, right? You've already burned yourself. But he's going to try to convince everybody that this is not a problem. They've got it under control, and they can micromanage the the uh, the inflation rate to uh, the, their 2% target, or even if it's a little above that, that's okay. And if it starts getting out of control, then they'll take measures to rein it back in. But there's just no way that they can do that without drastically increasing interest rates. And when you do that, once you have uh, an entire nation buried in debt, well, then we're all screwed. Who can afford? Imagine what the interest payments on the national debt of twenty-five trillion are going to be if interest rates go up to even just like five or six percent. It's going to be the entire uh, tax, all of the tax revenue will go to paying the interest on the debt. And and believe me, five or six percent is not going to curb the inflation that 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 could come from this. They're going to have to go much, much higher. And then, of course, the the bubbles in the stock market and bond market will be completely destroyed and the party will come to an end. But I haven't seen anything out of the Federal Reserve chairman. I haven't seen any indication that they are willing to tank these markets to pop these bubbles that they've blown up in the stock market and the bond market in order to preserve what's left of the value of the dollar. And if you remember, that was their original plan, going back to the 2008 financial crisis. And the plan, the Fed's plan, stated goal, was to create this wealth effect by inflating stock prices. They wanted to create a bubble in the stock market that would show people's assets increasing in value so that they would feel richer. They looked rich on paper because all of these asset prices were going up and all their stocks were going up and everything looked great when you looked at their portfolio. And then they could borrow against those portfolios and they could use that money to put a new room addition on the house or redo their kitchen, redo their bathroom, all that sort of stuff. And they'd borrow against their house to do things. They'd borrow against their portfolios to do things. And we had record low basically 0% interest rates for 10 years, borrowing was very cheap. And we've created this house of cards that is clearly unsustainable. With or without a coronavirus, this is unsustainable. And this idea that the you know this is an economy, that the economy is this faucet that you can just kind of turn on and off at whenever you want, or it's an engine. That's uh, what, what politicians and Keynesians like to talk about, how they love to compare the economy to an engine that we can just, you know, we just need to give it a little more gas or, or pump the brakes a little bit because that engine's getting overheated, right? So we've been pumping the brakes, but we can, you know, we could start the car back up and just put our foot on the gas and everything will be fine. You know, that's what we've been doing. We're shutting everything down. We're pumping the brakes, but we're going to open everything back up and we're just going to step on the gas and things are going to go again. It's not going to be that easy. I'm sorry to break this to you. 
But you're going to find out here, you know, these state and local governments, they have no tax money coming in. The feds don't have any tax money coming in. But the Federal Reserve is going into hyperdrive. They're creating more money than ever before. They're buying up more government debt than ever before, more corporate debt than ever before, junk bond. They're, they're buying everything. The government debt is skyrocketing when government receipts are plummeting. And all of the jobs that they're depending on funding this government in the future, when, when we come out of this, uh, the vast majority of them are not going to be there. I, I was listening to uh, someone the other day. I forget where I heard this, but all of I think it was David Stockman. All of the jobs in the 21st century, all of the jobs that we've created since January of 2000 are gone. Every single job for the last 20 years just wiped out because of this. There have been more jobs lost in a month than in the entire Great Recession. And if you think back to the so-called recovery, all of the job growth that we were supposedly getting was in the service sector industry. And if you remember, if you were listening to the show when we were getting those numbers come out, I was very critical of all these jobs reports where you know, we create 250,000 jobs or something. And there are all these part-time leisure service sector jobs. And a lot of these times, a lot of times it's people that have multiple jobs because they can only get a part-time job working at, at Walmart or something like that. And so they have to take another job as a delivery driver for a pizza place. And they end up with two or three jobs. Each one of those jobs gets counted in these numbers. You get a much better economic picture than you would have if you were being honest about about the employment situation. But these are all the jobs that are going away, like permanently going away. A retail industry is is never going to be the same. The the service sector industry, leisure, like what are what are these places going to do? How are they going to operate in this post-coronavirus world where you can't have more than like 10 people in a restaurant? How are these airline industries not going to go bankrupt when they can't f use their middle seat? Prices for everything are going to skyrocket. Huge swaths of the economy that we were dependent on because we had this phony economy that was all, all based on uh, all the growth was just debt-financed consumption. Uh, people would borrow money and consume things. They would consume leisure. They would consume service sector goods. And they would go into debt to do that. The, the, this whole thing was a house of cards that's coming down now. And a lot of those jobs will not be coming back. I just don't see a way for them to do it. Anything in retail is just, it's gone. Uh, th those, are, those are days of the past. And we're going to have to restructure this economy in a way that makes sense going forward. And I don't see how we can get our way out, ourselves out of this by pursuing the same type of um, debt finance consumption that got us into it. We, we, we had a, a debt crisis, right? The crisis was we have too much debt. Issuing more debt is not going to get us out of this. We need to return to sound economic fundamentals and principles of Austrian economics, not this Keynesian nonsense. It's the only chance that we have. Uh, on the federal and at the state level, and I, I almost forgot why uh, what started me on that whole little uh, tangent there about the, the the markets and the federal that we were talking about state, local, and federal pensions being uh, completely underfunded. This is going to be another real problem, one of the the multifaceted problems that we're going to face as a country. And if I can try to bring it back, I I, uh, I apologize. I went off on a little tangent there. But if I can bring it back to the, the article and the idea that they can get out, of, out from under all of these uh, pension obligations by not raising taxes is a fan. Taxes are always going to go higher. The, the real problem is that they've written into all of these state constitutions that, oh, you can't touch pension benefits, right? You're not allowed to cut benefits. And so this is the comical excuse that they come up with for why they can't uh, make any changes to these. Uh, they can't possibly cut any pension benefits because the Constitution says that they can't touch them. So obviously we just have to raise taxes. 
right? They're cutting spending. That's not going to happen. And we can't touch these. We can't touch our pension benefits now. No, no, because the, the Constitution says that we can't, which of all the things, I mean, is that the only part of the Constitution that they're going to abide by? The one that says that we can't cut their fucking benefits? Uh, look how that worked out. Isn't that nice? All the other things that the Constitution says that they can't do, they have no problem ignoring any of that. Where in the Constitution does it say that you can mandate I wear a mask to go outside or that I have to put up plexiglass in my business? All these other constitutional violations that they have no problem. They don't even bat an eye. They don't even look for it. They don't even consult the Constitution to see if they're violating it. But the second you mention, hey, you know, uh, maybe you don't get to have... 85% of the, the, the average of your last uh, three years working for the rest of your life on top of Social Security benefits and like all, this, all your health care paid for. Maybe that's going to have to be cut a little bit. No, no, no. Can't do that. Yep, see, see, it says right here in the Constitution. Yeah, we, we, wrote, we wrote in there that you can't cut our pay. You can't cut our benefits. So uh, we're just going to have to raise your taxes. Uh, oh, man, it is quite a fucking racket these guys have going. And a lot of balls, a lot of balls. And there are way too many people that are complacent with this. That's why, I mean, people are just moving out of uh, Chicago and Illinois in droves. They're out of here. Yeah, sure, some of it has to do with all the violence on the south and west side, but that's not a, that's not it. That doesn't account for all of these companies that are leaving, all of these people that are leaving. And, and it's just a, it becomes a self-perpetuating death spiral, right? You raise taxes because your constitution won't let you cut benefits to all of these bloated. And these, oh my God, these, these fucking bureaucrats, they're pulling in, you know, two fifty, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 a year in retirement, in retirement. And they're asking people working for thirty-five, maybe fifty thousand dollars a year to fund that in perpetuity. And we're the you know we're the ones that they're gonna come after us if we don't put a fucking mask on to go outside, or we can't use the park that we're paying for. Can't walk down the street. No, no, no. But you still have to fund their pensions. But it becomes a a, a self-perpetuating thing. And they're seeing this in places like Connecticut and California. All, all the people that are earners are going to leave when you raise taxes. So the, the people that are paying the vast majority of taxes to your state and local governments are going to be the first ones to get the hell out of there the second you start taxing them over X number, uh, X percent of their income. And they're in the best position to leave because they're rich. They're billionaires. They're millionaires. So it's easy for them. They can go anywhere in the world that they want to go. I mean, shit, places like Italy, before this coronavirus thing, they were paying you. They were offering you money to go to Italy and, and bring your business there. They were going to cap your taxes at like 200 grand a year, which if you're making millions of dollars, that's nothing. That is nothing. If you're a billionaire, are you kidding me? You're stroking million dollar, tens of millions of dollars in checks to the government, and you can go to Italy and live in the fucking countryside in a huge villa overlooking the nice rolling hills, have a vineyard, run your company from over there, and pay 200 grand in taxes? I mean, of course you're going to leave places like Chicago. You're going to be the first ones to leave, and you're going to take all of that tax revenue with you. And so then the, the budgets are even further constrained, right, because you lost all that income. So now you have an even bigger budget deficit, and you have to raise taxes even higher. And that next ratcheting up, well, that hits the—maybe it didn't hit the, bill, the millionaires before, but now it's the millionaires who have had enough. So first the billionaires leave, then the millionaires are saying, fuck this, I'm out of here. You, you've raised taxes too high. Now you lost all that income. And they keep ratcheting the, the percentage up until e even people in the middle class are like, okay, this is just ridiculous. I, I'm not going to stay here anymore. Why would I do this? The weather is terrible nine months out of the year. We have the highest sales tax in the country. Now we have the, the highest um, property taxes, I think, second only to New Jersey. And the more they do this, the higher you raise taxes, the, the less you, you're taking in and the more people you're, that are leaving, 
the more earners, and pretty soon you're left with all the takers and nobody paying into the pot, and then, and then you're bankrupt. And then you're bankrupt and you're begging the federal government for a bailout from all those other states that, that the billionaires moved to. So there's almost no escaping this if we allow them to get away with this. And man, this is, uh, these are the last like dying breaths of empire that we are witnessing here. This is like banana republic behavior. We're spending trillions of dollars, uh, creating it out of thin air, throwing it at, at the markets, throwing it at the banks. There's corruption on every level. The government's bigger than ever before. Our military is everywhere, overextended. We're in every single goddamn country, like 115 different countries or something like that. We still have bases in Germany and Korea and Japan. And Why? What are we doing over there? <laughs> like, you know? Um, uh, so our military is overextended. Uh, we're up to our eyeballs in debt on every single level. State, local, federal, personal levels of debt are out of control. And our last ditch effort at trying to keep this party going is to print money. Print money like they did in Zimbabwe. Print money like they did in Venezuela. Print money like they did in Weimar, Germany. Uh, print money like they did. Actually, this is not. Uh, America's first bout with a with a fiat currency backed by nothing, paper money that that has no backing, and we have had a a serious problem with runaway inflation, and it goes back to the Revolutionary War days, where in order to fund the uh, Revolutionary War, the Continental Congress issued a fiat paper currency backed by nothing, and it was called the Continental. All right. And this is what happened was they, they printed so much of it. They created all this inflation that, that you can read some of the journals of like uh, George Washington and things like that. And they'll talk about how a wagon full of provisions costs a wagon full of continentals. And it brings back all of those images of the Weimar Republic or Venezuela where you're carrying around backpacks full of money just to buy like a, a thing of flour. And it gave way to the phrase, not worth a continental. So if you've ever heard that, that's where that came from. And that was our first experiment with fiat currency. And that's why the founding fathers put into the Constitution that legal tender would be gold and silver. And the federal government had the ability to coin money. Coin money. Not print pieces of paper and write stuff on it. No, no. Coin it. Coin it meaning gold and silver, meaning you can't just create it out of thin air because you will run into this problem we just came out of, which was hyperinflation, trying to fund a war with fiat currency, just like we did in World War I with the Federal Reserve, and we did in World War II, and then we did in Vietnam, and that's when we had to go off the gold standard back then because, you know, Vietnam, and then with uh, all these wars going on in the Middle East. This is how you bankrupt a nation. And we're watching, we're going through it right now. It's, it's like watching a car crash in slow motion. And um, man, it really is unbelievable to watch people buy into this mentality that we could just, well, we'll just print it. We'll just, you know, go give, give out stimulus checks, give out a universal basic income. We're just going to create this money. We're, we're going to write it onto a piece of paper. We're going to give it to everybody. I mean, what's wrong with that? How, how could that possibly go wrong? And if that was the way to do it, I mean, come on. This would just be so easy. There would never, ever be any poverty. There would be nothing. There would never be a failed country, a failed state. It would be easy because all you had to do was print up some money and write numbers on it and give it to everybody. And then problem solved, right? Of course not. Of course it doesn't work like that. Just think about it. One of the reasons why I wanted to start this show I know this is, I'm ending on a fairly depressing note here, but people need to know this stuff. We need to remember these lessons of history because we are doomed to repeat it. We are, we are repeating it right now. And th that whole thing, oh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Now, it fucking repeats it. I mean, look, we're doing exactly what we've done uh, 200 years ago. We just keep doing the same shit over and over again and making the same mistakes over and over again and letting government get away with it. And we keep telling ourselves that, oh, well, this problem, maybe it was caused by government, but government will be the solution. 
And if we just make this little tweak to the government, or if we just get our guy or our team in charge, then all of these problems will eventually be solved and nothing could be further from the truth. That is a fantasy. That is the utopian ideal that, that people need to get out of their heads. And it's why I wanted to start this show. And thank you all so very much for listening. Uh, I'm going to wrap there, guys. But do me a favor and share this show with somebody that you know that needs to hear it. Maybe somebody that you know that, that thinks that what we're doing right now, what the Federal Reserve is doing right now, what the country is doing right now, is somehow uh, a new and, and unique idea. Like this is somehow progressive and we're going to, nobody's ever tried this before and this is how we're going to get out, out from under all this mess that we've created. No, no, th this is the problem. This is not the first time. A lot of people think that like, this is like some new thing. This is a new idea. No, we, we've done this before with disastrous results, and so have a lot of other countries. And we really need more people to wake up and learn these lessons of history and stick to these libertarian principles of, of free markets, of individual rights, property rights, and the principle of non-aggression. If we ever want to have a chance of having a country, uh, of having a civilization, right? It's not, we don't need taxes uh, to, to have a civilization, but you do need to have those libertarian principles if you want to have any sort of standard of living and a society that people would actually want to be a part of. So do me a favor and share this show. Download and subscribe. Give me a rating and review on iTunes. Five stars if you think the show is worth it. If you want to go above and beyond the call of duty and become a supporting listener of the show. You can do that by going to peddlingfictionpodcast.com. And if you can do all that for me, I will be back with a brand new episode later this week and we can do this all over again. Until then, just remember to keep on peddling that so-called fiction.